Good morning. Wow, we've already had a morning. I, uh, <laughs> many of you probably know this already, some of you don't, uh, that my wife, Leisha, had a stroke just over five years ago. And I remember sitting outside the MRI machine to find out about the blood clot on her brain. And I remember praying and hoping, <laughs> trying to believe. I just want you to know what a miracle it is, what God did for your son. Sorry, I'm starting in such an emotional train wreck. <laughs> but it's what Resurrection Sunday is all about. <laughs> so why don't you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. I know I say this all the time, but this is honestly one of my favorite stories in Scripture. And I think about it all the time. I don't think about it because I have to think about it. I think about it because it affects my life all the time. And when I think about this story, it convicts me, it inspires me, and it continually reframes my life in the present. So we're going to read it together and we'll go from there. Luke 24, verse 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. This is a very profound yet strange Easter story. And I think one of the things that we struggle with as believers is we struggle with understanding the element of surprise. The element of surprise is missing from the story because we know how it ends. So what, what it does is it, it makes Friday less painful and it makes Sunday sometimes less rejoicing because we think what happened was that God pulled a trick as God in raising God from the dead. Like God was temporarily out of service for three days, but then he came back and it was okay. So it, it, it reduces the emotional impact of what we're experiencing. But this story is in the Bible to help us reclaim some of that element of surprise, some of that element of wonder. This story helps me reclaim my, my, uh, my sense of surprise, my sense of wonder. And uh, Dad has initiated this new series that we're going to enter into after Easter, and it's all, thank you very much, Shara. It's all about how God 
brings about surprises that transform people's lives. So we're going to just talk about what happened on Easter Sunday, and then we're going to talk about its effect on the early followers of Jesus and how they began what we now know as the church and how these called out ones just continually were surprised by the happenings of God, how God would continue to interrupt their lives in unexpected ways, ways they didn't anticipate. Because one of the things that they have an advantage in is that they didn't expect him to rise from the dead. But we read the story and we do. We do expect him to rise from the dead. We read the story in retrospect. They were experiencing it with their lives. So you have to remember that on Easter Sunday, nobody knew, nobody anticipated, nobody believed that he was coming back from the grave. Sunday wasn't a day of celebration. Sunday was the beginning of life after the largest loss and the biggest disappointment they had ever faced. So these two followers of Jesus are leaving Jerusalem and they are recounting everything that has happened. But you have to understand that in leaving Jerusalem, they are leaving all of their hopes, all of their dreams. They are leaving the movement they were a part of. They are leaving the logic with which they lived their lives, their core values, their mission statement, everything they cared about, they had put it all into Jesus. They'd put all their hopes, their dreams into Jesus, and now they're leaving Jerusalem. They're walking away from all of that, and they're trying to process the contradiction that's happened in their lives. Does anyone, does anyone have some contradictions in their lives that they're struggling with? That they're like, I wanted, I wanted my life to work out this way, and it hasn't worked out that way, and now it seems like the time has passed, and so all of my hopes and dreams represented in how I, in, in this case, metaphorically, how I've been to Jerusalem, and how I've waited, and how I've longed for something, and how I've put my hopes into something, and now they've been dashed, and they've been contradicted, and now I'm basically walking away from it, and all I have left is the contradiction, and all I have left is the pieces, and I'm left to try to process what's happened in my life. I thought I'd be debt-free by now. I thought I'd be married by now. I thought that the Lord would use me in signs and wonders by now. I thought that my wife and I would have reconciled. I thought that my, I would have gotten that promotion. And we're stuck in a life of contradiction, and we're wondering why things didn't work out the way they were promised. We had a good reason to hope. We had a good reason to believe. We didn't get our hopes up in a false thing. We put our hopes in Jesus. And yet we're walking away from what he seemed to indicate was going to happen. We're walking away because the contradiction is too much. We're overwhelmed by it. And it seems like our life has fallen apart. Maybe not in every way. Maybe not even in big ways. But in small ways, we're left walking away from the hope we once had in disappointment, in contradiction, wondering why the dream is dead. In that place, the Bible says, Jesus walks with you, but your eyes are hidden from recognizing him. I wonder how many people have walked away from faith, they've walked away from religion and relationship, they've walked away from community, they've walked, off, they've walked away from their marriages, they've walked away from good finances by heading to Vegas, 
They've given up on their hopes, their dreams. They're so confronted by the contradiction in their life that they're ready to just burn it all down and leave it all behind. And yet, and yet, Jesus, (laughs) Jesus shows up and starts walking with them. I'd like you to know that even if you're disappointed right now, and even if your life doesn't fully make sense, and even if you're wondering why, why, why aren't my kids serving the Lord? And why isn't that breakthrough that God promised, why isn't that happening in my life? I want you to know that even if you're living with that sort of doubt and contradiction, and even if you're ready to burn the whole thing down and walk away, even if today is your last Sunday as a Christian, <laughs> I'm not saying that that's true, but perhaps maybe that is. Maybe someone in here is like, you know what, after this, I'm done. I'm becoming a Buddhist. Okay, I have a message for you. Here's my message for you. Jesus is going to walk on that road with you away from your hopes and dreams. And you're not going to know that it's him because that wouldn't be fair to you. But I want you to know that Jesus is with you and Jesus is with them even on the road away from Jerusalem. There are many people in my life who I I love and I care about deeply who have made choices that I don't understand. And I know that as they leave their hopes and dreams behind, as they choose a different way, I know that Jesus is still with them. Not in the way I understand, in the way they can understand. And he said to them, what are the words that you were exchanging with one another as you were walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of these things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? (laughs) You got to catch the comedy. He's hilarious. And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and in word by the, and in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, it is the third day since these things happened. So they tell Jesus their story. And they tell Jesus that in their story was their hope. And their hope has now been dashed. I want you to notice something. Nothing about their story is wrong. They don't get any of the facts wrong. They tell the true story of how they believe Jesus was the Messiah, how he was mighty in word and deed, how he performed signs and wonders, how they believed he was sent from God, how he went to Jerusalem to inaugurate his kingship, and how even though he did these things, they had placed their hope in him, and now he's been dead for three days. The reason why they can't recognize Jesus is their story doesn't permit them to see him. Everybody tells themselves a story, and in our stories lie our hopes. So one of the ways we get around contradiction or one of the ways we get around deferred hope is we tell ourselves a story. We give our lives a frame so that life makes sense to us and so that we know what to trust and what to believe in. So for example, 
if you are struggling with your finances and you're not able to make ends meet, by the way, when I was a kid, I'd hear my dad say that expression and I thought it was like the butcher would cut off the end of the meat, like make ends meet. It means like taking two ropes and trying to bring them together, making the, end, the ends of the rope meet, not like a butcher's end. And it, you know what? Never mind. That's just getting me thinking about rump roast and you guys all want to get home for supper. But one of the ways we bring our lives together is if we're struggling in our finances, let's say, and we don't know why we haven't received breakthrough yet, then maybe, for example, we'll begin to seek a prophetic word or we'll begin to seek some kind of insight. Or maybe we'll shame ourselves and say, if only I would try harder, maybe my finances would be better. Or maybe we'll blame other people. You know what? I was really frustrated by how my brother or how my sister divided the inheritance. And we tell ourselves a story that makes sense of our feelings and gives us a place to either put our hopes or our disappointments. And in this case, their story isn't wrong. It's just that their story keeps them from seeing that it's Jesus. Because their story was that Jesus would come into the city and would be inaugurated as king in a violent revolution, and instead, he went as a lamb to the slaughter, and he did not even open his mouth. And their king, their champion, died right in front of them. And I don't want to minimize the pain of that, because there are people who have faced that level of contradiction. There are people who have watched their loved ones die. There are people who have had to say goodbye to their children. This is very real in our world. I hugged a friend this week who lost her baby. And the story that she was telling herself and the story she was hoping for is no longer the story that's going to come true for her. And all I had was tears. Because nobody goes into a pregnancy thinking that it's going to end in a miscarriage. Nobody goes into a marriage thinking it's going to end in divorce. Nobody goes into a job thinking they're going to get fired. But we give our lives a frame, and when the frame is contradicted and our hopes are dashed, we find ourselves unable to cope. And what it leaves, with, what it leaves us with is really only one road left, which is the road out of town. The road away from other people, the road away from participation. Because when we're trying to tell ourselves a story in order to frame our experiences, it has to line up with reality. We can kind of fudge it a little bit, right? We can say things like, I'm not fat, I'm fluffy. We can do that, but it doesn't really work, right? At a certain point, at a certain point, our circumstances contradict us too much and we go, I can't actually deal with this. I either have to tell myself a different story or if my hopes and dreams have been completely dashed, then I'm going to have to give up on the whole project entirely. I'm going to have to find another reason for living. And the reason why this is so important to me is the resurrection and its place in the Christian's life is not primarily about getting you and I to believe in an event that happened in history. Many Christians, including myself, think of the resurrection as an event that happened in history, and the goal as a good Christian is to believe that it happened in history. It's like, I believe Napoleon invaded Russia, I believe that you know, Hitler was defeated in 1945, and I believe that Jesus rose again 2010 years ago. <laughs> I don't know exactly how the dates line up, right? But it's actually not really about that for us. Like, I do believe that this 
historically happened, that there was a man named Jesus who lived and died and physically rose again. But our faith in the power of the resurrection is not primarily about faith in a historical event. Our faith is in the power of the resurrection as it pertains to our lives right now. And if we want resurrection life and power, we primarily want it in the places where our lives are facing contradiction. I'm disconnected from my loved ones. I don't know where my kids are. I don't know if my marriage is going to last. It's in the places of pain. It's in the places of hopelessness. It's in the places where our lives and our circumstances seem to continue to contradict us. And they tell Jesus the story, and it's the right story. But then they miss the very end. But also, some woman among us amazed us. They told us a wonderful tale. When they were at the tomb early this morning and they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. One of the reasons why this story is so important to us is this story teaches us that the Bible, the scriptures we have and proclaim as the word of God, the very scriptures themselves can be read in different ways. One of the ways the scriptures can be read leads us to the kind of story that makes us want a triumphant king, a victorious, violent, conquering king. And then another way that we read the story, the way Jesus reads the story, brings us to believe in and follow the kind of God who participates in our suffering. See, these two men are brokenhearted because their lives and their hopes have been contradicted. Jesus doesn't come to them and say, everything's okay. Jesus comes to them and he listens to their pain because he's already participated in their hopelessness. They looked upon him as he died and they looked upon him as the death of their dream. He hung upon the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus was not forsaken by God, but Jesus felt our forsakenness. He felt the feeling we feel when all hope is lost. I'm sorry I'm such a mess today. <laughs> but I felt that feeling. I've laid hands on the dead body and commanded it to live, and nothing happened. I've been to a funeral for someone who died far too soon. I've watched friendships, people who said that they were going to walk with me for life, turn and walk away from me. 
And we do not get to resurrection without first experiencing a death, a death that Jesus joins us in. Jesus is not the only one crucified on Golgotha on Friday. Two other thieves, one who was repentant and one who wasn't. Really, the entire human condition was right beside him on either side of of the cross. There's a story of Ellie Weissel. She tells of, of the Holocaust survivors for, sorry, the Holocaust victims first being brought into the death camps, and they took, they took even children and hung them before everyone else. And an eight, I think it was an eight-year-old boy was hanging to death. He was struggling as he was dying. And one of the Jews in the camp yelled out, Where is God? Someone else yelled out, He's up there with that boy. The only way we get to a resurrection is to believe that in our very worst pain, in the very worst thing you've ever experienced, the thing you try to avoid, the thing that you can't think about at night because it will keep you up and it will keep you from sleep, in the very worst moments of your life, Jesus was not just with you as a friend beside you, but he was ingrained within your experience and he felt every bit of pain that you felt. He suffered exactly as you suffered. The only way we're going to understand what the resurrection promises to our lives today is if we stop trying to avoiding the contradictions and we stop trying to tell ourselves a different story and we stop trying to say, well, you know what, it's okay, I'll try better next month and we'll figure this thing out and we'll make it all better because we won't make it better sometimes. And sometimes life is completely broken. And sometimes people are gone or lost or dead. And the only hope for us is to look upon the one we have pierced and realize that in the crucifixion, Jesus joins every moment of human suffering that has ever happened in human existence. This is what the Bible means by saying that he carried the weight of our sin upon us. Sin means to miss the mark. Everything that contradicted heaven came upon Jesus upon the cross. That means your loneliness and your frustration and your disappointment were not things you felt. They were things you might have felt alone in, but you were actually not alone. Jesus was with you, experiencing those things with you and as you. And you might say in the middle of your contradiction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you're not the first one to say it. The conquering Jesus is the God from the outside who comes in on a white horse to rescue us from all our pains so that we don't have to suffer and we don't have to sacrifice. And that was the kind of God they were looking for when they went to Jerusalem with all their hopes and dreams. Perhaps their mother or their wife or their sister was assaulted. Perhaps their money was taken by tax collectors. Perhaps they were beaten by Roman centurions, but they knew the love of Jesus was real and they knew he was worthy of being king and they wanted him to contradict the pain and instead he suffered under it. And isn't that the hardest thing in our lives? When we want God to fix our problems and instead he just joins us in them? It's probably the worst part of faith. Is that sometimes he doesn't make it better. 
Sometimes he just stays with us. But the way Jesus reads the scriptures is so different. (laughs) Because Jesus doesn't read the Bible the same way they do. And he begins to bring them through the scriptures and he begins to connect the dots and he begins to put pieces together that they've never noticed before. And I want to encourage you that there are many places where the Lord can speak to you. One of the places is scripture. But you have to let him teach you how to read it. Because you can read it wrong. A good example of this is something my dad preached on several weeks back. Psalm 91 says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, and Him I will trust. Later on it says, 10,000 people in battle will die at your right hand, but you won't even stub your toe. Right? So many people, they take their Bibles and they go, See, Psalm 91 means that I am... I am never going to suffer, even a stubbed toe. And it honestly, it feels right for us. But this is built into the frame of that conquering Jesus we're always tempted to follow. You know who quoted the Bible that way to Jesus? The devil in the wilderness. He said, Psalm 91 says he'll give his angels charge over you. Just throw yourself off the temple. They'll see how God saves you. Jesus says, God doesn't save me that way. Instead, God entrusted his life and his death and his resurrection to his father. There's a way of reading the Bible where you see that God is actually a co-suffering servant the whole time. But it isn't in the main narrative. It's in the counter-narrative. Like, for example, right now I'm working through the book of Jeremiah. And honestly, the main reason why I am is because it was the only book in the Bible I'd never highlighted any of. (laughs) Like, it was the book of the Bible that I didn't really read at all. So I met with a guy who was a professor. (laughs) He's a great guy named Sam. And he did his PhD in Jeremiah, and we sat down for coffee, and I wanted to get his advice. And one of the first things he said was, it's basically unreadable. And I was like, thank God, someone else feels the same way I do. And he's smart. But in the book of Jeremiah, this crazy thing happens. Jeremiah is sent with a message to tell Israel to repent because they're committing child sacrifices and they're oppressing the poor. And God says, I'm going to lead you into exile because you've not even been willing to listen to my repentance. So Jeremiah proclaims the message and then he gets beaten up for it. And then he gets exiled to, to Egypt. And in the middle of all this, he's telling God, I told them what you told me to say. And they didn't listen, and it didn't help anything, and it made my life worse. And you notice again and again, the same pattern happens in the Bible. The way we think things are going to go, the story we tell ourselves, and the way we think God is going to fulfill his promises to us isn't how it turns out. Instead, we get death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. And in the book of Jeremiah, and in his life in particular, you get 51 chapters of death and three verses of resurrection. But there's a way Jesus read the story. There's a way Jesus read Jeremiah that let him know before he sacrificed. 
there's hope for me on the other side of this. <laughs> you understand, when Jesus believed he was going to rise again, he wasn't using his God powers. He wasn't cheating. He wasn't looking at his own life and his own circumstances going, yeah, I'm good. This is no problem. Just a little knock, a little scratch, and then I'll stop breathing, and God will bring me back. No big deal. He wasn't being a tough guy. He had read the scriptures, and he had hope that God would raise him up. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as, acted as if he were going farther. I think that's one of my most favorite verses. Jesus just plays pretend, like, hmm. He's just like continuing on, right? He's there to meet with them, but they don't see him clearly. And so he allows them to make the decision as to whether or not they will invite him in. What does Jesus represent? Jesus represents the possibility that even though they don't know how, hope is still alive. They're listening to a man who goes, hey, there's actually another way to, to, to read this story. You think all hope is lost? You think nothing more is coming? You think there is no resurrection? And even though you've heard rumors of angels and the possibility that Jesus is alive, even though that I've showed you in the scriptures that there's another way of understanding this, you're still not quite there yet. So I'm going to continue walking and I'm going to see, are you actually alive to the possibility, even just the faintest glimmer, that something else could happen? Because if you're not, then I will let you go on. But if you're alive to even just the faintest hope that has no rational logic, that has no possibility, you don't know how it's going to work, you don't know why, in every conceivable way, this isn't going to happen, and yet, there's something inside your heart that says, "Uh, I think this has got to stay in me a little longer. I think I've got to stick with this guy a little longer. I think... Something's happening here, and I don't know what it is, but I'm going to lean into it. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he had, this is the most important verse, when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Where have we heard this before? (laughs) They don't open themselves up to the possibility. Sorry. They open themselves up to possibility by doing two things. One, by being hospitable to a stranger. And two, by having a meal with someone and opening their hearts to them. I heard a Christian theologian once say that most of Christianity is just eating and drinking together. Like, what if, what if faithful practice is simply being together, being with one another, and being vulnerable with one another? What if in being in relationship, what if in inviting someone into your life and breaking bread with them and letting them see your disappointment and living with the hope of possibility, even if you can't explain it, what if that's like the majority of what this is? Because to be honest with you, I don't know how much I actually believe. Can I, just, can I just scare you a little bit? Can I make you a bit uncomfortable if you're not already uncomfortable? I feel like it's a rule that I have to do this in every sermon, otherwise I haven't preached. 
some days I wonder, I genuinely wonder if God is even real. And sometimes when I wonder if God is even real, I don't get an immediate answer. But there's a temptation to live out of a religious experience that makes the point about me convincing myself of what the facts are. And then there's another way of living that's actually about doing life together and being vulnerable with what's going on in your heart and finding out that God meets you there regardless of what you're going through. See, what just happened was they invited in a stranger who happened to be Jesus, but they didn't know it was Jesus, and they dumped their guts on him. They let go of all of their resentment and all of their disappointment and all of their frustration and all of their contradiction and all of their doubt. Jesus didn't come to them and say, man, why haven't you guys figured this out already? He came to them going, I'm here to bring comfort to you through relationship because you've invited me into your life and you've invited me to process with you. So many people are struggling to live a life of faith because they think the point is to try to get themselves to believe in the right thing. But we have a story here of people who didn't believe the right thing and Jesus showed up in their lives and ignited the spark of possibility. If you struggle with doubt, if you struggle with contradiction, the right recipe is not to convince yourself of the facts. No, 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 I'm not allowed to think that way. God is good and things are going to work out fine and blah, 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 blah. And we do this to ourselves sometimes, right? Call it, call it being faithful. These two men didn't do that. This, these two men were on their way out. But they happened to have supper with a friend who turned out to be Jesus. Hope does not come alive in our hearts because we keep it alive. Hope comes alive in our hearts because even when we let it die, God brings about the resurrection. Resurrection is not up to you. Resurrection doesn't depend on your permission. Resurrection doesn't depend on you believing the right thing. Resurrection doesn't even depend on you being a Christian at all. Resurrection is the sovereign will of God toward his son to prove, to justify that love wins in the end. And in the middle of every contradiction, whether you're on the right or the wrong side of the story, God is going to come through and vindicate his love. I'm not really teaching you anything this morning. I'm just preaching because I'm super excited. You may have struggled with a health issue, and you may have come to the altar a thousand times wanting to be healed, and nothing happens. And you may be so frustrated, and you may, in your frustration, go, you know what, I, I don't even want to serve God anymore. And guess what? Resurrection's coming for you anyway. Na, 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 na. <laughs> we built this whole thing on believing as though it's resting on our shoulders as a work we must accomplish. But it's actually not the faith in Christ that saves us. It's the faith of Christ. It's what Jesus believes about your situation that actually matters. And so you come to the altar a thousand times wanting to be healed and you're not healed and you're going the whole time, I'm not really allowed to be disappointed because if I get frustrated or if I begin to doubt, God isn't going to heal me. And you put all this pressure on yourself to try to make it happen and it still doesn't happen. 
So I'm letting you know that if you give up, resurrection's still coming your way. Because it doesn't depend on you. The only way these two men participated in what Jesus was doing was by offering him a meal. <laughs> by being willing to be human. By sharing a moment of, of simple love and uh, simple connection with a total stranger. And a stranger changes their story. Then, when he breaks the bread, their eyes are opened and they recognized him. And this is the funny twist. This is the strangest part of the story. And then he vanishes. Which, every time I read the story, it felt like a total ripoff, right? Like, doesn't that suck? You just figure it out, and then he disappears? <laughs> but here's the reason why Jesus disappears. Jesus disappears not because he is absent from them, Jesus disappears because they realize he is fully present in everything. Jesus broke the bread and said, this is my body. He didn't say, this is like my body or this is a symbol of my body. He said, this is my body. Some Christians get caught up on that. They're like, well, when does it become the body of Jesus? And they, they talk about like, this is a, I'm getting deep in the weeds here. This is like theology nerdism coming out, okay? But there's a whole issue about like the, the transfiguration of the bread and the wine. When does it become flesh and blood? And I don't think that that's the point of this. But I am saying that the bread really is his flesh and the wine really is his blood. What do I mean by that? When they see him break the bread, when they see him recreate at the table what he suffered under three days before, they realize... He's in everything. He has been suffering with me this whole time. He has experienced my disappointment as I've been disappointed. He's experienced my contradiction as he was contradicted. And in that very moment, they realize, oh, he's in everything. Because if God is in the very worst moment of your life, if God is fully present in the greatest suffering every human has ever experienced, where is he not? Here's the great Christian declaration. He descended into hell. Meaning, he went to the worst possible place and the greatest contradiction. His presence fills everything. If he's in the very darkest places with the very worst people, how can he not be everywhere else? And they happened to, to want to fellowship with a stranger just to have a human moment, just to be honest about what they were going through. And when he breaks the bread, they realize that it's Jesus. But they also realize that Jesus has always been with them the whole time. Not as a belief, not just as a theory. His manifest presence is with them the whole time. And I want you to know that if you walk out these doors today and you think oh, everything I said was a load of hogwash, I'm still right. <laughs> like, I don't particularly care how you receive this. You could be a, a, an avowed atheist who hates all of this stuff and thinks it's garbage and you, could, and you could just be so overcome by your own disappointments and your own contradictions that you can't see a way out. And I'm just letting you know, this applies to you too. 
Because what happens next? They turn around and they go back to Jerusalem. And they're like, you're never going to guess what happened to me. The strangest thing just happened to me. A dude told me a different story, and now hope has come alive in me. And what's the hope? What is the great Christian hope? The great Christian hope is not that Jesus resurrected, but that his resurrection applies to everyone else. Literally, it's in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection of the saints and the life everlasting. The whole point is that everybody gets a resurrection. The whole point is that if you've lost a loved one, or if you've lost a child, or if you've lost a marriage, in eternity, God will make all of that right. He will vindicate and justify all of your losses. All of them. This is what we're heading towards. We're heading towards a just and merciful God who will make history right in the end. And whether it's tomorrow or whether it's after you die, it doesn't really matter. You are headed in a funnel toward resurrection. So if you stand in the hospital and say goodbye to a loved one and you wonder where God is, he's with you, but he's also before you. Because you're on the way to resurrection life. He's not, I say this so many times, it's not even funny. He's not going to look at the Holocaust at the end of time and shrug his shoulders and go, wow, you know, all those people died and all those people committed injustices, but, you know, I made you a sweet paradise. Did you check out your mansion? No, he's there in those moments so that in the end he can make them right. And you may be looking at your life going, I don't know how this is ever going to work. I have other dear friends who received the prophetic word. She would have twin boys. And she had twin boys. But they were stillborn. And I look at that and I just feel the pain of it. It just feels wrong. And it makes me angry and it makes me sad but there will be a resurrection. <laughs> because he is the resurrection and the life. And I'll see those boys in eternity. So we all came in here today and we all came in with our stories. Some of them are long and complicated and painful and some of them are short distractions that keep us just going from one thing to the next. But either way, I want you to know that Jesus is with you. Whether you see him or not, whether you know it's him or not, he's with you. He's in your life, and he's offering you a different story. He's offering you a different way to experience community, and he's offering you a different way to read the scriptures, and he's offering you a different place to put your hope. He is not asking you to avoid the pain and the disappointment and the loss. He's actually asking you to be honest about it, to be real with it. Because in that moment of greatest defeat, in your crucifixion, you find out that he hung on the cross first. And in your moment of forsakenness where you feel like he isn't present, you realize he said it first. He felt everything you're feeling and... He promises to bring you to a resurrection. 
And you don't have to believe me. You honestly don't. Because they didn't. I get permission because the scriptures teach me that nobody believed. So I don't have to believe either. I can lock the door and hide in my room for the rest of my life. And Jesus is the type of resurrected being who walks through locked doors. He gets into the places where I'm even trying to keep him out. All I'm trying to do this morning is I'm just trying to just flick a little spark of your hope that might not even make sense to you to believe the great Christian confession that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. (laughs) Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. I make, honestly, it makes me feel like I've got electricity in my bones. Every time I say it, it just, it just blows my mind. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. <laughs> I'm going to keep saying it until we become a black church, okay? Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. <laughs> For everyone. For everyone, love conquers everything. Not by causing us to escape our pain, but by joining us in it and in redemption, bringing about resurrection life. He didn't cheat death for a moment. He shall never die again. Death has no hold on him. It has no claim on him. On the other side of losing everything, he gains everything. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He said, as I am lifted up, I will draw all mankind unto myself. There isn't one person who's accepted from this. And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with him, saying, the Lord has really risen. (laughs) Do you get it? They're not saying it. They're not saying it as a statement of faith. (laughs) They heard it as a statement of faith. Someone else told them, the Lord has risen. They're like, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Great. I'm not sure. It doesn't mean anything to me. I'm still walking away from Jerusalem. And then they see him and they go, the Lord has really risen. (laughs) Like, it's real in me. It's not the memory of the past. It's the life of the present. The resurrection life of Christ is within you. It's within you. It's sustaining you and and making you come alive to hope. So let's leave in the power of the resurrection. I really don't have anything more to say. Let's, let's, let's Let's eat an amazing meal together and let's be honest about the condition of our hearts. Let's stop pretending. Let's stop over spiritualizing things. Let's get real with one another. Because when we break bread together, who knows who ends up breaking the bread for us? Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again.